Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and your co-host for today's program. And we hope you are staying safe and are well wherever you are. And we look forward to seeing you in person again one day at the Commonwealth Club's headquarters in San Francisco when it's safe to do so. Until that happens, we are doing all of our programming online. This is the latest in more than 400 online programs the club has produced during the pandemic. You can find all of our upcoming programs, as well as podcasts and video from our past events at commonwealthclub.org. Now, if you're watching us live on YouTube, use the chat box to submit questions for our special guest today, and we'll work some of those into our conversation, which appropriately enough is taking place during lunchtime here on the West Coast. Now, I want to introduce Michelle Miao. She's the producer and the host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club of California for bringing thought leaders together. Our guest today is John Birdsall, who grew up near San Francisco and learned to cook at Green's Restaurant. He spent the next 17 years in professional kitchens in San Francisco and in Chicago and did some writings as a side gig, including food stories and restaurant reviews for the San Francisco Sentinel, a pioneering LGBTQ weekly. After leaving the kitchen, he was a restaurant critic and features writer at the Contra Costa Times and East Bay Express, and also served as the editor of San Francisco Weekly's food blog. In 2014, he won a James Beard Award for food and culture writer for America, Your Food is So Gay in Lucky Peach, and another in 2016 for straight up passing in queer food journal Jari. He's written for Food and Wine, Bon Appetit, the San Francisco Chronicle, and LA Times, but today he is here to talk about his book, the Man Who Ate Too Much, The Life of James Beard. Let's welcome John Birdsall to the program. John, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, thanks for having me, Michelle. So many folks like me uh, who like good food and, and know of good food only because, you know, we go to these restaurants and we know of chefs that have received a James Beard Award. Uh, well, we we actually don't really know, you know, James Beard, the person and what his name his name actually means. I mean, we know he's, he's a chef, he, he's an author, he's a television personality, but very rarely do we talk about the fact that James was an out, or not, I'm sorry, not an out gay man. Um, I'll read a little bit of what you wrote in the preface uh, included in the book. Queerness wasn't just an interesting footnote to Beard's life. Queerness was its central p- principle, the fact around which Beard organized his existence. But yet it was a part of James Beard's life he chose to keep very quiet. So why don't we start with that? James Beard, celebrated man who moved American kitchens from TV frozen dinners to locally sourced food, good food. Uh, he was actually a, a gay man who felt he had to be closeted. Yeah, um, you know, very much because of the times he lived. He was born in 1903 in Portland, Oregon, uh, died in 1985 in New York City. Um, and in that span of a life, you know, spanning nearly the whole 20th century. Um, it was a very, very difficult, very challenging time for LGBTQ Americans. Um, and if you were as famous as James Beard was, and also happened to be queer, um, it was especially perilous. You know, he became a household name starting in the 1950s, you know, well through the 1980s, he had a very long reign as the most identifiable authority on food, drink, and entertaining in America. 
But at the same time, he really did have to hide who he was. So it was a life spent in a lot of um, sort of lying about who he was, about sort of creating these myths about who he was, but not really showing his fans, um, how he lived, um, you know, who he spent his time with, um, how he entertained in private. Um, but yeah, he, you know, the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, um, you know, I used to have this feeling that American food was kind of idyllic and pastoral, you know, that it was all, um, a food culture of small farms and, you know, great pre-industrial food. But American food in the 20th century, really early in the 20th century, was had really been industrialized. And by the time James Beard wrote his first book in 1940, American food was really dominated by uh, large food corporations, um, you know, General Mills and these companies who would um, write cookbooks that were um, you know, the cookbooks that most Americans bought. And they talked about a lot of things. They talked about nutrition. They talked about, you know, cooking within a budget um, and cooking within the traditional family. You know, women were expected to do all this cooking. But what they didn't talk about was cooking for flavor. Um, you know, things that we take for granted, which is to, you know, find good ingredients, maybe at a farmer's market, I mean, those things didn't exist in the 1950s um, and buying food that was in season um, and learning how to cook it to kind of preserve its wonderful freshness and flavor. Those things were all essentially unknown except to a very, very small group of people in America in the 1940s and 50s. And James Beard really came along and popularized that. He really advocated for Americans to cook with an eye to flavor, to change the way they shopped, um, you know, to kind of resist these huge greening supermarkets, which were, you know, in some ways, the great accomplishment of America after the, the Second World War. And James Beard said, well, you know, even if you live in New York City, you could probably find a farmer, you know, on the outskirts of the metropolis who is raising chickens in the old fashioned way, and you could buy eggs from them, from, from him. Um, you know, and you'll, you'll, you'll see the difference, um, you know, told people to grow things in gardens, even on their fire escapes, you know, to grow food. Um, so we all of, you know, so many things that we take for granted now, farm to table, definitely, you know, he was, uh, an early advocate, um, and perhaps the architect of this sort of farm to table culture that we take for granted now. He, he became such a giant figure in, in bringing about that, that change you're discussing. Let's talk, let's start at the beginning, like your book does, with his childhood and, and in particular his, his parents. Uh, tell us about that and what role maybe that had in, in shaping the man he became. Yeah, he was born into a middle-class family in Portland, Oregon. Um, but he learned from a really early age, well, he learned two things. One, he learned um, from his mother, who was uh, a queer woman, um, that he had to, that there was a way to express queerness if you, if you hit it. <laughs> um, and he also learned from his mother that there was a way to express all of the things that you couldn't do, perhaps, in your normal life, um, you know, since you had to appear straight from the outside. 
that food could be this sort of tremendous vehicle for um, expressing all of this uh, passion, creativity, and longing that you couldn't do in your public life. Um, so his mother was from England. Um, she had come uh, and settled in Portland. She was a governess for a wealthy family, ended up in Portland, um, had an affair, a major affair with a woman in San Francisco. She had come to San Francisco to run a boarding house, and she met this uh, aspiring actress. And they had a long affair um, even sort of ran off together at one point. Um, but of course, you know, it being the 19th century, it wasn't really possible for people to do that. You know, women especially needed to, you know, were expected to um, live according to strong conventions. And that meant having, you know, having a husband. Um, and so uh, Elizabeth Beard, James, James's mother, took a husband, a man named John Beard. Um, there was no love in the marriage. They could barely stand to be in the same room with each other. And so James grew up with this model of family that was really dysfunctional and broken. Um, and, you know, all of his mother's um, love, all of her joy was something that she couldn't express publicly. And so James absorbed that lesson from early on. And one of the ways that his mother um, sort of made life bearable was to cook this kind of amazing, wonderful food from food that she grew herself um, in their you know, large backyard in Portland. But also she was very keen on, you know, marketing, um, going to farmer's markets, uh, having arrangements with farmers to churn butter for her and all this all of this um, really elaborate, lavish um, world around food and its preparation. And they had a summer cottage on the coast south of Astoria in a town called Gearheart. And James and his mother would go there um, in summers to, you know, to get away from John Beard. Um, and James sort of, you know, his mother would sort of cater, um, you know, cookouts on the beach. And James, meanwhile, was able to sort of sneak away and, you know, fish for crawfish in the creeks and catch little Dungeness crabs on the beach uh, and pick wild berries. And so it was this really this kind of grounding in um, ingredients and the food and ingredients that are so special that come from a particular locale. Um, again, as I said, really the roots of the farm to table movement. You can see them um, in James's early childhood education uh, with his mother and at the beach. So it was really idyllic in many ways, his childhood, but at the same time, it was very painful. Um, you know, he was very um, lonely, spent a lot of time by himself. Um, okay, I want to build on that. It kind of made me wonder, I mean, he had that, that, Great rooting, oh, forgive the term, and and you know these local and, and great ingredients and such. I mean, I'm wondering how you think it it affects how one him you know comes to think about cooking and food when you know his mother ran a boarding house. She did this catering. How how you come to think of it? No, you know, doing it for customers for a different type of audience than your family, for example, because they're going to eat whatever you give them. Um, do you, do you think that plays a, it makes you look at, at the food and the cooking in a different way? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, James's 
you know, even 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 as an adult, even when he became sort of famous as you know the preeminent food authority in America, um, his 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 books, certainly his cooking classes, they all had this sort of performative quality to them. And, and of course, he was a frustrated actor and opera singer. Um, you know, he grew up even starting in high school, um, wanting to be on the stage, wanting to be an actor, and then later thinking that he could become a great opera tenor. Um, that didn't work out. He didn't quite have the talent to, 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 to make it, but he had this grounding in theater uh, in sort of putting on uh, a character. And his food was very much uh, a product of that. I mean, food was sort of a last resort for James Beard after he'd failed in theater um, uh, and, and, and opera. You know, he had moved to New York City. Uh, he was living in Hell's Kitchen, <laughs> the large apartment building where a lot of, um, you know, queer people who worked on Broadway, you know, actors, stagehands, costume makers. Um, and he found that he could throw great parties. You know, he could uh, take not very much money and with a lot of ingenuity, a lot of charm and panache, he could throw great parties. So he became known for that. So, you know, as I see it, there's this um, merging of food, uh, of theater, and of queerness. Um, you know, all three really come together superbly in James Beard and, you know, create this, this, this kind of great persona, um, you know, this great figure in American food who would take all of those things and, you know, make them and kind of mainstream them mainstream them. Um, but of course, you know, the, the, the queerness was something that, that was, that was just below the surface, but, you know, was, you know, definitely huge engine of his whole approach to food and entertaining. Which makes it, you know, very interesting and that, you know, this is a unique story. He grew up with a lot of culture, with food, I mean, theater, uh, and queer culture, um, and, and even his mom, you had mentioned it, you know, being, I think, queer. I don't know if uh, that was actually ever made or, uh, you know, was was the actual truth. But uh, but yet he was but he was closeted. I guess that's what I'm trying to uh, get at. I mean, I think that he had written at some point that he knew he was gay at seven years old, seven, eight years old, somewhere around that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he said that much later in life, um, as he was sort of looking back, and um, you know, he was he felt that he should come out publicly uh, before he died. Um, so he was kind of musing with a friend um, who was interviewing him, and sort of came up, you know, with this reminiscence that he realized that he that that at seven or eight that he was definitely gay, which is you know a very common experience. I mean, you know, it was, that's probably about the time that I, you know, felt that I was gay. I didn't understand it at the time, but sort of later I went back and was like, oh yeah, that's, that's totally what that was. Um, so yeah, he, it was, it was, for James, it was never in doubt um, who he was attracted to, his sexuality. Um, what was in doubt was how he could express it, how he could live in the world. Um, and a large part of doing the research for this book for me was, um, understanding 
queerness, understanding sexuality um, at a time when all the assumptions and all, you know, pretty much all the practices, all of people's public behavior was completely different than anything that I ever understood. I mean, I grew up feeling, you know, anyone I think who grew up post Stonewall, <laughs> um, who came out post Stonewall, has this sense of queerness as a kind of binary, um, you know, that you are either, you know, not out yet or you're out. <laughs> um, and for Americans um, through most of the 20th century, it wasn't as simple as that. It was, um, there was a very complicated um, coded reality for queer people where you had to um, couch your behavior, you had to couch your speech in this careful coding um, where you would, you could, you know, deny that you were queer in public um, and you could pursue a queer life, especially, of course, in a big city, um, but you had to do it carefully. You had to know when and where and how to do it, how to even speak to people um, in ways that didn't put anyone's safety, including your own, at risk. Um, and one of the things I struggled with in the book was whether or not, to, you know, what, what word to describe James Beard. Was it queer? Was it gay? Um, and it occurred to me at some point that, um, you know, having a name for yourself, calling out, having a public title for your status, for your sexuality, wasn't, was, is, is actually a luxury. And, and it's something that, you know, a lot of people in the 20th century, earlier 20th century didn't even have, like they wouldn't have a name for themselves. You know, they wouldn't say I'm queer. They might say, um, you know, in queer circles, they could joke that they were queens, that they were pansies, that they were fairies. Um, but it's not like you necessarily had a term for what you were. You just knew that you were special, you were different, and you, you know, there were there were many other people like you, but you had to be very careful about about finding them and about being with them. So James Beard had an extremely complicated um, sexuality, very complicated uh, life of queerness, and even just the ways that he could talk about it um, were were very were were very complex. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. Actually, I was going to say, John, it reminds me of the story um, of Bobby Cutler, you know, the first uh, Secretary of State for to President Eisenhower or Roosevelt. Sorry. National Security Advisor. Yeah. National Security Advisor. Yes. Uh, and came up with a policy for the actual policy to fire uh, anybody accused of being LGBT, you know, in the uh, federal government. And, and, and nobody knew he actually was a gay man himself. So you talk about a very defined, um, you know, point of American history and now, but in the food world, John. Uh, actually, I do have another question about it. Just John, I think you've got a, a, an app or something that's sending notif or making notifications and dinging every so often. If you could maybe either silence that or, or close the app, that'd be great. Um, uh, along these lines, we were talking about, you know, what term might be applied to him. And of course, Gay itself is a term that has another meaning, which is happiness. 
or happy. And I just want to go off on this of, of all the stuff he's done, all the things he's dealt with in his, throughout his life. Toward the end of it, do you, do you think he had a happy life? Was he happy with what he had done and, and with himself? Um, I don't believe that he was. Um, you know, I spoke with friends of his um, who were close to him you know, in the last couple of decades of his life and said, well, you know, J James had suffered from depression his whole life. Um, and he managed it, um, you know, partly through um, drinking. Um, you know, he didn't consider himself an alcoholic, but he, um, you know, he did everything with food and drink in uh, excess. Um, and I think that that was definitely part of managing it. Um, he also took um, he also took um, you know medications. There was a popular one in the 1950s called Miltown, um, uh, sort of a tranquilizer. Um, so he would so James would take that, um, but he he would just have these horrible periods of depression where he wouldn't be able to work. Um, and he was someone who worked a lot. He was constantly, you know, it was rare for him to say no to any project. Um, and towards the end of his life, I think it became even harder for him to push that away. So at some point in like the early 1970s, um, you know, a good friend of his said that his mood, his mood really changed. Um, and he was very pessimistic about the future. Um, he didn't you know, he felt in many ways that he didn't accomplish that much, that he wished that he had been able to accomplish more. And he didn't really want to leave anything of himself behind. Um, you know, he specified that all of his possession, you know, he was this great collector of kitchen and other kinds of antiques. And his townhouse in New York City was just packed with these amazing, you know, Victorian Majolica plates <laughs> and, you know, this huge knife, you know, antique knife collection that he'd amassed and all this stuff. And he didn't, he didn't want to save any of it. He didn't want to give it away. He, you know, specified that it all be auctioned off. Um, his house sold. Um, you know, it's ironic that the James Beard Foundation, which was formed after he died, kind of wouldn't, wouldn't let James Beard die the way, he, <laughs> wouldn't let him disappear the way that he wanted to. But yeah, no, I, I, I think, you know, apart from his depression, I think, you know, he, it was very complicated to him for, for him to conduct his life, um, you know, as a, as a, as a famous person who couldn't really ex express who he was in public. And I think that was just, that was just part of the, of the, um, you know, one of the stresses sort of pushing in on him that, that sort of caused his depression. So yeah, I, he was not, um, he was kind of a sad, kind of tragic figure toward the end of his life, for sure. What, you know, he, uh, well, let's talk about the LGBTQ movement and how James Beard may have been impacted or affected or what he thought about that. I mean, I think that he lived right near Stonewall Inn when the Stonewall riots happened. He did. That's uh, right. Yeah, he lived uh, just a couple of blocks from the Stonewall Inn. He lived on West 12th Street in New York City. Uh, it's still the house is uh, uh, called James Beard House now. It's owned by the James Beard Foundation. Um, yeah, and in fact, in fact, he was in New York City um, the, for the you know for the nights when the Stonewall Rebellion happened. Um, there's no evidence that he, you know went to take a look, <laughs> um, but he would have heard it, 
very clearly uh, from 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 his house. But that's another very complicated aspect of his life and the life of actually a lot of um, queer people, especially gay men, um, in who you know lived for decades before Stonewall and then were suddenly faced with this um, huge change, um, this political uprising, um, this social change um, is very uncomfortable. And I think especially if you lived in the West Village like James did, um, you know, the West Village was a place where gay people had carved out a kind of safe enclave. Um, you know, there was a page one story in the New York Times, I think in 1964, so maybe about five years before Stonewall. And it was this huge expose, like that, you know, uh, that Greenwich Village was full of gay people, <laughs> you know, living, living normal lives. You know, it was this very sensational kind of homophobic story, uh, expose, you know, it was like, you know, the person behind uh, next to you on the subway, you know, could be gay and you wouldn't even know it, you know, and they've infiltrated uh, fashion, you know, they've, 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 they've infiltrated art. Um, so the climate, you know, even in the 1960s, not long before Stonewall, that was the climate in, even as, you know, enlightened a place as New York City. But the village was a place where people could carve out some degree of safety um, if they were very discreet about it. Um, you know, I talked to a few sources who said, you know, back then, you know, even in the 1970s, even after Stonewall, um, you 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 had a completely compartmentalized life. You 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 had to. I mean, even at work. Um, if you suspected, or even if you knew that somebody who worked in the same office as you might be gay, you wouldn't, there was so much fear, like you wouldn't even sort of wink at each other, <laughs> you know, in the lunchroom over the water cooler uh, or mention something to each other, you know, try to connect with people. It was just, it was too risky. You know, there were no job protections. You could lose your job. Your life could be over essentially. Um, but at nights and on weekends in Greenwich Village, you know, people could get together. Um, you know, people could have a completely cordoned off private life. So to have something like the Stonewall Rebellion happen where, um, you know, suddenly um, um, there was a civil rights movement that talked about coming out publicly, um, you know, and in fact, um, you know, coming out was a political act coming out publicly was a political act. Um, it was a tremendously challenging moment for people. And, and there was just a lot of anger too. Like, you know, how dare these kids, you know, how dare these, um, you know, kids, kids in drag and trans women, you know, coming down from the Bronx, <laughs> you know, into our world that we built to be safe. And they're just upsetting all of that. Um, so it, 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 you know, it wasn't like, you know, yay, Stonewall, we're all free. It was, it was, um, it was, it was extremely challenging, um, for people, you know, especially people who had kind of amassed some privilege, um, like James Beard, you know, and, you know, professional white men who had carved out a life in the village. Um, it, 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 it was an extremely um, um, 
you know, frightening time. Um, you, you mentioned some of his uh, failed careers in, in acting and opera and such, but um, he, of course, went into uh, both cooking and in teaching and, and being a public uh, face of, of really a new way of, of, of thinking about American food. Um, how did that universe, that industry, that uh, the, the people in it, including some other famous names, you know, we come to know Julia Child and, and others, how did they react to the gays and lesbians among them? I mean, was this a, you know, you think of certain industries as being kind of LGBTQ friendly. How was it for uh, uh, James Beard? Well, uh, the food world in the United States was extremely small. Um, so the, the, the circle of um, cookbook authors, food writers, um, um, you know, editors of cookbooks, publishers, um, it was extremely small and it was all center, essentially all centered in New York City. So, you know, even though James was not out publicly, it was a, an open secret to the small circle of food people in New York City that he that that he was gay. I mean, that that would have been impossible to hide. Um, it, it so it it was it was open to allowing gay people to you know to 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 work and socialize in that world. Um, and there were in fact quite 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 a number. Um, of gay and lesbian people who worked in food media, but there were very, very strict rules. And the rule that nobody could break or bend was that you, you did not come out. You, you did not expose who you were in any way. Like you didn't, you, you, you didn't even joke about it. Um, and those rules were all made by people who were straight for the most part, who controlled the industry. Um, you know, it reflected broader society. You know, American society was like that as well. Um, but the food world was, you know, especially um, interesting because there were so many kind of closeted queer people who were um, sort of you know, making kind of architects in a way of American food culture, but they, but they, but, but they had to remain closeted. Um, you know, there's this great generational shift. Um, one of the sources for my book, um, knew James Beard. He was, um, he's a man named Billy Cross and he and his partner, Michael James, uh, Michael James, unfortunately, um, passed away in the 1990s. Um, but they, uh, had met at Chez Panisse restaurant um, where Billy worked uh, and Michael came in as a customer and they were, you know, in their early twenties, they fell in love. They became a couple. Um, and Michael James was the assistant for uh, Simone Beck, who had been Julia Child's co-author for Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And so uh, they were friends with James Beard. <clears throat> and in 1972, um, Billy and Michael James came to New York City, and there was a new French consul in New York City, so there was a big, lavish reception, and they were all invited to go. And so Michael and Billy arrive at James Beard's house. Um, you know, they were going to go to the party as a couple. And James Beard never went to any event without a woman on his arm. 
I mean, everybody in New York food knew that, you know, he was not romantically involved with any of these women, but it was just, that's just what you did. The culture demanded that you sort of at least keep up appearances that you were straight. And so, you know, James Beard had his date for the evening, this woman, Frances Field, and James sort of pulled Michael and Billy aside, pulled the boys aside and said, where are your dates? <laughs> and they said, we're each other's dates. And James was like, you, this is 1972, said, you can't do that. You're at the start of your careers. This will destroy your careers. You have to, it's, it's ridiculous, but you have to play along. This is, this is just the way it is. I didn't write these rules, but these are the rules. You know, they said, screw it. We're, we're just going as a couple. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, you can see that kind of, you know, post Stonewall generational shift. But, you know, the New York food world was very invested in this idea that you had to keep up appearances. Um, you know, Julia Child is someone who was very close to James Beard. They were very good friends, but, you know, there are documented cases of Julia's homophobia, um, you know, casual and maybe not so casual, um, you know, homophobia. Um, and it was just, it was just accepted. And it, if you, um, if you stepped out of the lines, you know, if you, if you stepped out of line. Um, you know, if you didn't play along with these st very strict gender and social conventions, you you were you were ostracized um, from from this from this world from this industry. And I wonder if that was really kind of what uh, burned into to James Beard by the experience that he had in college. And could you explain to our viewers what happened to him in college and and. Uh... The end result of that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, for James Beard, um, the risk of what could happen if you came out wasn't just theoretical. I mean, it wasn't something that he would have read about. He had very direct experience. He had a very close call with something that could have ruined his life. Um, he uh, enrolled at Reed College in Portland, Oregon in 1921. Um, and Reed College was still a new institution, you know, is still a very progressive, um, university. And it was at the time, it was sort of established to be very open and progressive. You know, it, um, it would, uh, you know, it had 50% female students, which was almost unheard of, you know, in the 1920s, it, um, you know, accepted Jewish students. Um, so it was very, um, as I say, progressive in many ways. Um, James Beard being the young aspiring actor, um, you know, away from home, uh, lived on campus and sort of really kind of feeling himself, you know, went to a Halloween party and drag, um, felt like he could express himself at Reed College. Uh, and even perhaps come out uh, in some way. Um, he had a romantic attachment uh, with a male professor, uh, the young head of the German department, and they were actually discovered um, having sex one afternoon, one Sunday afternoon. Um, and this became a huge problem 
potentially for the university. Uh, Portland was a pretty politically conservative place um, at that time. It was, you know, dominated by Republican politics and had this kind of Republican populism. And gay people, especially gay men, were seen as um, a kind of, um, you know, degenerate uh, group of people who were um, who were trying to seduce, you know, honest young men. Um, and so Reed College was a private institution and it depended on donations from supporters in Portland. And so, you know, the last thing that Reed College needed uh, when it was just starting up was a huge gay scandal. There'd been a, a major uh, gay sex scandal in Portland in 1912. Um, and it uh, ended many lives. Many men were um, prosecuted uh, and put in jail. And so James Beard and a few of these men were, had actually been friends of, of James Beard's mothers. Um, so he knew firsthand what the consequences of being caught, being exposed were. Um, he, um, you know, Reed College came up with a solution, um, probably actually a very progressive solution for the time, which, um, you know, instead of involving authorities, which also would have put Reed College on the front page of newspapers and some sort of sex scandal, which they didn't want. Um, they decided to take care of it quietly. So James was allowed to, you know, after only one year at Reed, he was allowed, um, well, actually he was, um, he was expelled. The reason being that he was, um, you know, deficient in scholarship was how they put it. Um, but actually it was a convenient, um, way of having him step away. Um, uh, the professor, um, after the, the, after that, that term, uh, was basically fired. Um, and he never taught again. So this was something that reverberated through James's life. You know, James, uh, created a lot of myths about himself and he would talk about his past. Um, and sort of change the facts to make his life seem perhaps grander or more important than it was. Um, he never, um, there's, there's, there's no recorded instance of him even mentioning to anyone that he went to read college, uh, until he, until it was much later, you know, until he was, he was in his seventies. So it was, um, a really kind of defining moment of his life, really searing moment in his life that he never wanted to talk about. Um, so the fear, uh, the, the, the fear and consequences, um, were, were real for James. You know, it wasn't just sort of losing a job or being embarrassed for James. It was this, 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 this real uh, trauma, um, that he had known as a boy, that he'd seen as a boy, uh, having your whole life ruined, um, for being exposed. I think that's what I enjoy the most about the book uh, that you put together here, The Man Who Ate Too Much, The Life of James Beard, is the drawing or this connection that you draw of what queer people go through when they're faced with that type of trauma um, and having to go through the pain of living several different personalities or lives in these systems that oppress us. So from James's experiences in college 
to working in uh, even you know, trying to make it in theater, but then getting to the place where even the politics, the environment is not necessarily LGBTQ friendly or queer friendly, we should say, um, up until this very, you know, his, at the end of his life, as you'd mentioned, he kind of was a, a tragic figure. I think that there is a James Beard in all of us uh, as queer people. I think we, we kind of always continuously go through that kind of questioning what more can we give this world that isn't necessarily made for us. Uh, and so I, you know, I kind of wanted to ask you yourself, John, cause or, or John Birdsall, John B, not John Z, but I mean, I, I guess all of us could say it. I mean, we're all queer here on the program. Uh, if you agree with that, if maybe that was an, a connection for you and that you saw that there, the James Beard story was not being told appropriately. Yeah. For sure. I mean, you know, I had, I had, I kind of came up in, in my career through restaurant kitchens. Um, you know, before I started writing, I cooked, um, professionally for, uh, for many years. And, you know, of course I cooked with tons of queer people in the kitchen, the most sort of creative, um, you know, not to mention most wonderful people that I ever, you know, cooked with were queer cooks. Um, and yet, you know, even in San Francisco, where I did most of my cooking, you know, even in San Francisco in the 1980s, 1990s, it was not safe to be too out in the kitchen. Um, and so part of my motivation for writing this biography of James Beard was this sense of outrage uh i think i used the word rage <laughs> in the introduction to my book this feeling like you know so much of american food culture so much of what's wonderful about american food culture um was built by queer people working in restaurant kitchens and also you know writing cookbooks uh being on television <laughs> doing cooking demos but We've had to be, you know, for so many years, we've had to be second-class citizens in the kitchen. We've had to not be able to be fully who we were, express express who we were. And that seemed like, partly it seemed like a cruel irony, um, you know, especially at the, you know, fine dining level of cooking, where so much of the story of restaurants was about the chef sort of expressing their life story through their food, expressing who they are, you know, expressing some sense of authenticity. And it just, it, it made me so angry and terribly sad that so many people in the industry um, weren't, who were queer, weren't able to do that, um, weren't able to do that fully. And so, Originally, when I wrote the essay, America, Your Food is So Gay, my motivation had been to kind of redress that injustice and say, hey, <laughs> you know, everybody, every chef I knew, um, you know, straight, gay, whatever, wanted to win the James Beard Award. You know, that was like the pinnacle of career success. And chefs who had run homophobic kitchens and I felt, you know, like the irony of a homophobic chef craving this medal that had an image of James Beard, who had this really tortured life, 
you know, not being able to truly express who he was. And so originally with that essay and then in this biography, I really wanted to correct that. I really wanted to depict queerness through food, um, you know, in this way that I hadn't, that I hadn't seen before. And, you know, I, we've been sort of talking a lot about James's sadness and dysfunction in his life. But, you know, the, the way that James's life was joyful and the way that he made it joyful for so many of us was through food, through this culture of food and enjoyment um, and celebration. You know, I see one of the things James Beard was doing in the village when he was not being totally out was having these really ecstatic, joyful, you know, Sunday brunches with his queer circle um, and really using food as this medium of joy and celebration, but also of um, kinship, um, you know, in a way that we, especially as queer people understand, you know, that you gather the people around you who are really your family, who really understand you, who really allow you to be who you are. And I see all of that in James Beard's accomplishments and he taught America to do that, even though they didn't really know <laughs> that it was something that was cooked up in his in his in his in his gay kitchen. Um, I was so going to say, I, I think, I think, uh, I think a queer person, if not James Beard, invented brunch. Yeah, 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 completely. And you know, you know, and these brunches would just go on for hours. And of course, you know, there was just drinking. There was just food coming out of the oven. Um, and in a completely unpretentious way. Um, and, and that was also new for the most part in sort of high level American food. I mean, it had been happening in other people's homes, but just that idea that, you know, food is purely about enjoyment. Um, and yeah, you know, so many, you know, I even sort of found some recipes in some of his later books that were, had this sort of queer chain of, you know, that sort of reflected this kind of queer migration of the 20th century, you know, gay men and, 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 and queer women who had to leave the sort of small towns all over America where they were, came to New York City, became friends with James Beard and would sort of bring this family heirloom, like, oh, this lemon cake that my grandmother in Texas always made, um, you know, that of course, the person's cut off from because they can't really go back to Texas <laughs> once they've come out in New York City. So it has this, you know, James published those recipes. You know, he didn't tell those stories, but he would just be like, oh, you know, this wonderful Texas lemon cake. But it has this whole story, this whole queer story of, you know, migration, of sort of joy mixed with sadness. Um, and just, I have just found so much of that in James's story. Um, that it sort of kept me really uh, inspired. He did not come out until, what was it, 1981? Um, is that correct? And, and um, you know, he never came out publicly. That's a, um, yeah, that's something, um, I know the source of that information and, and it's and it's not correct. Um, okay. Yeah, he, um, um, he contemplated coming out publicly um, in, the, in the late 1970s. Um, and yeah, after Stonewall, he, he did feel drawn to come out. But by that time, 
Um, you know, he had a major cookbook editor and, and his major publisher at Knopf. Um, he had a lot of people writing on his books selling. And, um, you know, James Beard died in 1985. I mean, that was the same year that we all found out that um, not only that Rock Hudson had been, had been, had been, you know, dealing, dealing with AIDS, but, you know, of course it was irrefutable that, 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 that he was gay. Um, and that was a huge scandal. And so, you know, you can see the consequences of somebody really famous coming out um, in the early eighties. I mean, it, 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 it would have been a scandal. It would have um, really affected his, popularity and his book sales. And there were so many people invested in him not coming out, um, you know, who were making money off, off of James Beard. And, and, you know, this would have been um, a major hit to, to, to his viability as a, as a commercial entity. Um, so yeah, he, he wanted to, um, but he, but he never actually did. Has the restaurant industry changed since then? Is it less homophobic? Um, um, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah it, it is. I mean, and, you know, now in 2021, you know, who knows? I don't even know where the industry stands, you know, where it will be when we, when we come out from, 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 this, from this moment. Um, but, yeah, recently... Things have changed, although, um, you know, at the very highest, the so-called highest level, um, where there's more money, more investors, <laughs> more money riding on restaurants, um, there's still, um, people are still reticent to, to, to be fully out. It's a, it's a, it's a very complicated dynamic. And I also don't want to, I also don't want to criticize people whose life experiences I haven't had. Um, but, um, but yeah, there's a, there's, there's a great reluctance. There's still, um, a homophobic culture that hasn't completely, um, left the restaurant industry. There's a great deal of reticence, um, for some reason, which I have tried to like report on in past stories, there's just been this fear that if you are pegged as a queer chef, that you are less respected in the industry, that your food can't be top-notch. Um, you know, there's still a very Euro-French-derived, <laughs> like militarized culture of kitchen organization, you know, where the chef is the ultimate authority. Um, there's a kind of military discipline in really high-end kitchens you know they're not collaborative spaces um haven't been spaces where people could come out and say you know chef <laughs> um i really take exception to the way that you're you know joking about queer people or you know that 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 sort of gets you kicked out of the out of the kitchen and there's so much competition to be in kitchens, just even as unpaid interns, um, that um, it's hard for people to risk their careers by being too vocal. Um, so things, things, things have changed. There are definitely more women, more out queer people, more people of color, 
in high-end kitchens, but still not not nearly enough to really change the culture in ways that it needs to be changed. James Beard, of course, made his career at a very specific time in American history. He talked about you know the the change in the early part of this century of the past century uh, from you know more agrarian, more local food to very corporatized and and, and uh, say corporatized food. Um, so I, I want to ask two questions. One is, uh, do you think having now gone through all that we've gone through over the past now seventy years or so? of, you know, development and adopting and then more immigration and more adoption of different things. Do you think there could ever be another person who has the impact of James Beard um, to really kind of reorient to the way that Americans, what, whatever percentage of Americans, you know, are, were his audience, the way that they think about food and cooking and presenting? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, part of James Beard's story is, is, you know, he was really only possible in a food world that was very, very top down, that was, that had a lot of gatekeepers, um, where, um, you know, is very kind of, you know, definitely white and affluent, (laughs) you know, there were these arbiters of culture, um, including the food culture, who said what it was. And James Beard sort of defied that in many ways. You know, he sort of broke through this brittle, um, high-end gourmet culture of of the day, of the 1950s, and got Americans to eat um, in a different way. But it's a very, um, it, it doesn't truly take into account the diversity of American food. Um, and, you know, even the diversity of American food at the time when James Beard was writing, um, you know, especially after he wrote his book, uh, his great book, James Beard's American Cookery in 1972, he was, he was always asked to define American food. What's American food? What's American food? And at some point he just said, well, it's whatever people in America eat, <laughs> whatever Americans eat, because you know, American food, even in the 1950s, was something that, that couldn't be defined. I mean, people people pretended to, you know, they said it was sort of French or it was this sort of Anglo, you know, Anglo-American hybrid. You know, it didn't take into account, you know, the history of Black cooks in the South or of, you know, Asian-American cooks, especially on the West Coast. And, um, you know, it was very Western European and and very white. So in, in many ways, we have moved beyond <laughs> that idea of American food, that narrow idea of American food, meaning that somebody like James Beard would not be possible again. Um, you know, thank God there, there's, there's just too much diversity that we're all happy about and living with and have incorporated into our lives where that wouldn't be possible. Having said that, I do feel that there are figures right now who have the kind of appeal of James Beard. Um, I think of Samin Nostrat, um, someone who um, is uh, unexpected in many ways. You, you know, um, you know, Samin's rise to 
popularity has been a wonderful thing to watch. You know, it's someone, um, you know, she's not like the typical stars of Food Network. <laughs> you know, she seems completely fresh. She comes from, you know, she's got this complicated, diverse um, background that she can talk about and this just unpretentious love of food that is infectious in the way that she, you know, talks and laughs. That's someone who, um, you know, James Beard very much had an appeal like that to American to Americans in the in the 1950s. Someone who just seemed completely, um, you know, typically American in this sense of being, you know, unpretentious and fresh and like bubbly and just in love with food and with life. Um, so. I think somebody couldn't have the same authority and reach over, you know, so many years and over so many um, people as James Beard. But there are certainly people who have this appeal that James Beard, who can sort of make us all want to cook, who can make us all fall in love with going to the farmer's market and kind of wanting to find delicious things and cook for the people we love. So. I'm going to add on top of that, you know, a, a great American figure, um, I think part of our, our history and part of our politics, and you should definitely grab the book if you haven't done so, The Man Who Ate Too Much, The Life of James Beard by J, uh, John Birdsall. John and I have our special copy. Thank you so much, John. Um, you know, one of the things I think we, we started with before we uh, began the program is John and I talked about how people were really impressed and loved the way that you wrote the autobiography. I, for one, thought about, like, I wonder what lengths he went to to get so much information about James Beard. Yeah. You know, um, I, I have to say that it was kind of an obsession, which <laughs> um, I'm not totally proud of, um, you know, my husband certainly <laughs> certainly felt it because I was so absorbed in James Beard uh, for so many years. But um, yeah, I I absorb. I tried to absorb anything that I could find. Um, there were a dwindling number of sources who knew James Beard who I could speak with, so I had to do a lot of archival research. Um, but I wanted to immerse people in the time when James Beard lived, you know, what it felt like to um, be on the Oregon coast in 1915 <laughs> or in New York City in 1955. Um, and so I just looked at as much material as I could to really kind of immerse myself and immerse the reader in that, you know, um, old films, photographs, other contemporary accounts. Um, I, I, being the biographer of a queer subject um, who lived at a time when they couldn't be out and, and in fact, you know, destroyed a lot of uh, valuable information, you know, like letters and things like that, that they felt were too incriminating. Um, being a queer biographer is, you know, there's a special level of archaeology that's 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 called for you have to look not only at the material that's out there but you have to look at the um you know erasure marks in somebody's life the things that they tried to tried to cover up 
tried to hide. So I spent a lot of time trying to find those things and then seeing if I could find a pattern, seeing if I could find meaning. Um, and I kind of took it as a mission to um, correct or address what I felt was an injustice of a queer subject feeling like they had to hide. So I felt a special responsibility to go find these clues um, and, and um, you know, bring them to light. So, so you've written a very well-received book now on James Beard, and you yourself are a two-time James Beard Award winner. Maybe this book will win you your third. But I, I could see some people kind of see, knowing that, know that and thinking, okay, well, this is going to be a puff piece on, on James Beard. But it's not. You do show, you know, you do talk about some problems in his character and some of the actions he did and, and stuff like that. Was Did the James Beard connection, you know, you as a laureate, did that play any role in either you getting access to people to talk to or just in your focusing of the, the book in any direction? Well, um, uh, mm. Perhaps people were more willing to talk with me, but I, I don't actually think so. Um, yeah, I, I, and you know, in some ways, the awards and the foundation are um, quite, quite distant from James James Beard the person. Um, um, so there wasn't necessarily a direct connection. Um, I mean, I did have some great help from the James Beard Foundation, some archival materials that they had. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I knew, I knew going into this biography that there were some very dark, uh, dark places in James Beard's life, you know, that there, that he did, um, many, uh, many ugly things that it would be impossible, even if a biographer wanted to, to kind of justify or to explain or condone. Um, and I, I, I certainly I certainly had no intention of doing that. Um, and I felt that um, a large part of my job was to lay out facts and information as I found it and not to, you know, in the same way that I wouldn't condone, say, um, you know, James's exploitation, sexual exploitation of younger men. Um you know, I didn't want to try to somehow come explain that or come up with a justification for it. Um, but I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to bring any kind of bias of mine into it. So what I wanted to do was just kind of listen to sources, look at evidence that I found and just kind of lay it out, lay it out for the reader. And if the reader you know, came upon those things and they're too painful and decided to walk away from the book, um, I would totally understand that. Um, but, you know, the restaurant industry, like pretty much every other area of American life right now, in the past five years has been dealing with these kinds of stories, these revelations of sexual abuse, um, you know, certainly Me Too stories. Um, and the restaurant industry and the food business has started to take a look at those, but obviously still has a tremendous amount of work to do. And I hoped in some way that 
presenting James Beard in that context and describing that information, you know, describing those stories of James's, you know, abuse of younger men, his exploitation um, might be, you know, just another voice in this conversation, um, you know, certainly in the, in the, in the food industry of coming to terms with it, you know, um, I think even just kind of seeing how widespread it is helps in some way. Um, I mean, I hope it helps people who felt, who felt victimized by that kind of thing in the restaurant industry feel like they're certainly not alone because it's existed for a long time. Um, so I don't know. No, no, that's, that's also great. And I think great words for, uh, even yeah. my last question, which I wasn't going to ask, um, you know, but because you already made the point, I think for those you know who who know of James Beard, who want that award uh, or want to learn more about James Beard, I think you know learning about him and our history is so important for the work that we need to do going forward. Uh, John Birdsall, thank you so much for joining us here in the Commonwealth Club, and all of you out there who joined us. Um, yes, I definitely think this needs to be in everybody's bookshelf. The more we know, the more we can make those changes. John Zipper, you have the last words. Well, thank you everyone for watching and listening to this program. You can find out more Michelle Meow shows at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. So have a good end of your week and a good weekend. And we look forward to seeing you guys in person again one day. Thank you. Thank you.